This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us. There are few pro-life activists who have gone to the mat against the abortion industry the way that David Daleiden has. As founder of the Center for Medical Progress, David exposed Planned Parenthood's baby body parts trafficking scheme in that series of shocking undercover videos. And of course, it led to congressional investigations, but also unjust payback legal action from Planned Parenthood and its complicit enablers, making David the first journalist ever to be criminally prosecuted under California's recording law. Well, now David and the Center for Medical Progress have filed suit against Planned Parenthood, as well as against the former and current attorneys general of California and others, accusing them of conspiracy to violate both First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. And David is joining us now to tell us more. David, so good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's good to be here. Well, thank you. I know you have been through so much. My head spins when I think about everything that's gone on with you and the Center for Medical Progress in the last few years. But there was that verdict, that 2.2 million verdict back in November, that federal jury in San Francisco said that you and Sandra Merritt were guilty of conspiring to commit fraud and violate state and federal recording laws. Yet you're saying in this new lawsuit that it was Planned Parenthood and Kamala Harris and Javier Becerra and others who were the ones who conspired. Tell us a little bit about what the truth actually is when it comes to conspiracy here. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, Planned Parenthood, through the help of their um, of their handpicked favorite federal judge um, up in the federal court in San Francisco, Judge William Oreck, who was an Obama appointee who founded a Planned Parenthood clinic in San Francisco before mm. he was actually on the bench. So uh, included, and it was a Planned Parenthood clinic run by one of the Planned Parenthood regional offices that was involved as a plaintiff in that lawsuit. <sighs> he should have recused himself. He never did. He refused to. His um, his colleagues in the courts in San Francisco refused to, to hold him accountable. Um, so uh, Judge Oreck was instrumental in basically deciding many of the issues for the jury ahead of time, uh, extremely framing um, and cramping the way that the issues were presented in that case to, to just handicap us the entire way. Um, so it wasn't it was disappointing, but it wasn't hugely surprising that um, that Oreck and Planned Parenthood were able to extract a over two million dollar verdict um, in that lawsuit against uh, me and uh, several of, of CMP's undercover investigators, actually, right. um, for, you know, for the alleged crime of journalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that is and, and that is really of a pattern with what Planned Parenthood also did with their handpicked um, uh, political ally at the California Attorney General's office, first under Kamala Harris, who is now a, a U.S. senator from California and was most recently running for president and now appears to be kind of running for vice president, um, and then her successor, Javier Becerra. Um, to back up a little bit, the, uh, the, the California video recording law is pretty well known in its provisions. It's not completely unusual. It, um, you are allowed in the state of California to record conversations that happen in a public area, 
um, conversations that are not considered confidential that can be overheard by third parties who aren't part of the conversation. Um, you're prohibited from recording a, a truly private conversation, a conversation that is confidential and can't be overheard by, by anybody else who's not part of it. And so local TV news journalists in California, Fox News Los Angeles and CBS Los Angeles at NBC San Francisco, they are doing recording and publishing undercover video stories in California on a daily and weekly basis. And not a single one of them has ever been criminally prosecuted under the California video recording law by the Attorney General of California. I am the first and only case of someone ever being criminally prosecuted. And it's been on the law has been on the books for 60 years now. Mm. I am the first and only case of someone ever being prosecuted in California under that law for news gathering. Um, in a in a place of public accommodation, unbelievable. And so we we asked we we put the attorney general to the test in the in the state court in the actual prosecution, and we asked them why, you know, wh- wh- why am I being targeted when no other video recorder in California has ever been targeted this way? And the answer that the attorney general gave in open court, they said that you know Mr. Delighton is different because of the way that he edited his videos to enhance the shock value. And that makes him more culpable than other video recorders in California. Now, obviously, I dispute the characterization that I edited my videos to enhance the shock value. I think the content is shocking just the way that it stands. But it is, you know, be that as it may, it is everyone's First Amendment right to edit your videos for shock value. Right, You think a movie maker that it is it is everyone's First Amendment right in this country to underscore the gravity of their findings or underscore the gravity of, of their expressions. Um, and, uh, and so the attorney general has, has openly admitted, the attorney general of California has admitted that what they're trying to do is to criminally punish speech that they disagree with. And they didn't do that alone. They did that at the behest of Planned Parenthood, beginning under Kamala Harris. They told Kamala um, and her investigators that they wanted my computers that I was using to publish the videos seized. Not just seize the videos, they said seize my means of, of publishing. Yeah. Um, they had a, a secret in-person meeting with Kamala Harris, six top-level Planned Parenthood executives from the state of California, just a couple of weeks before she sent 11 California DOJ agents to raise my home, seize the computers used to publish the videos. It was an in-person meeting in Los Angeles with Kamala Harris and six top-level Planned Parenthood executives. We have the action items from that meeting. And at that meeting, they were discussing Planned Parenthood's political agenda in the state of California, like what they wanted in the legislature and other things. And then they also included two of the witnesses in her ongoing investigation of me at that time to discuss issues in the investigation and to provide false information um, about what my motives and intentions were. Oh my. So, um, so it, this was a, you know, th- this was a, quite simply a coordinated, premeditated, uh, brazen, and and then it's an ongoing conspiracy between Planned Parenthood and their um, their allies in the Attorney General's office to uh, to violate uh, my and the Center for Medical Progress's First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. They are trying to use the powers of law enforcement and the un- unfortunately some. I guess some some vagueness that's crept up in the California video recording law. They are trying to weaponize that and use that 
to criminally punish speech that they disagree with. And that's not something that we do in the United States of America. And that's not something that should happen to anyone, yeah. to any journalist, to any news reporter, to any citizen reporter. That should never happen to anyone to be criminally punished for the things that you want to that you want to say to other people. No. Um, and so that's why everyone should be concerned about this case. And uh, and, you know, we're you know, we, we brought it in federal court in Los Angeles and we're going to fight it through. Uh, to the very end, we're going to expose what Planned Parenthood and Kamala Harris have been doing behind closed doors. I'm so glad. I, I don't know how you can hang in there the way that you have and all of your great pro-life cohorts there at CMP. But I'm so glad that you have because what you're saying here is they're taking the law, they're weaponizing it, they're conspiring together, as you're saying in this lawsuit. I, I have a quick question, just kind of a side question. Given what William Oreck did and given his background, he didn't have to, he should have recused himself. But do you have any means of recourse just in terms of how the trial was conducted, the suppression of video evidence, some of the stuff that was clearly something that was personal to him because of his own involvement with Planned Parenthood, or do you, or can you not do that with a federal judge? Yes. So the the recourse with Judge Oreck now is that um, there's there's still a little bit of, of um, post trial briefing that has to happen. Um, over the next month or so at the uh, at the district court level, and then probably sometime by the end of the summer, I would expect we will be going um, we will be going on appeal at the Ninth Circuit for that case, the Ninth Circuit, which which now um, has you know is, is a very evenly balanced court thanks to a lot of the good appointments from the president over the over the past couple of years here. And when we do go on appeal with that case, with the with Planned Parenthood's lawsuit um, and appealing Judge Oreck's rulings, um, we will be putting the issue of his actual bias against me and against CMP and in favor of Planned Parenthood. We'll be putting that issue squarely before the Ninth Circuit um, as part of that appeal. That's a matter of right uh, for them to consider um, and for them to, uh, to consider his bias. Good. Hang on just a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break. David Delayden with the Center for Medical Progress. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today after this. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU-46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their 
share eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. We are so glad that there are pro-life warriors out there like David Daleiden and the Center for Medical Progress. I consider them phenomenal heroes. And David's right at the tip of the spear here in exposing what Planned Parenthood is really like. And now a suit has been filed against Planned Parenthood as well as against Kamala Harris and also Javier Becerra, who are the current and former attorneys general there in California, accusing them of conspiracy to violate both First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. David's telling us a little bit about this new lawsuit. Now, David, when you're talking about a conspiracy to violate both First and Fourteenth Amendment rights, you've outlined, for example, how Javier Becerra was saying that, you know, it was edited and that was what, you know, that was what he was upset about, the the editing to enhance the shock value of the videos, which is ridiculous because that would mean that editing was a crime and that's not part of the statute for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But what about the Fourteenth Amendment? How did they violate, would you say, as you're alleging in this lawsuit, how did they violate your Fourteenth Amendment rights? Yeah, so they, they really go hand in hand, and we and we kind of explain that throughout the, the course of the of the full lawsuit. Um, I am being the Fourteenth Amendment protects your right to life, liberty, and property, and also protects your right to have equal protection under the laws, and also to have due process un, under the law. Um, so you know, people have to be treated equally under the law, and um, and people have to actually be given a real legal process. You know, we don't have we don't have lynchings, we don't have inquisitions. Uh, we, you know, we don't, you know, you have to actually have probable cause and, and there's a, you know, there's an actual legitimate process that has to be followed when someone is charged with a crime and, and, uh, and, and really any, any legal, legal proceeding. Um, in this case, uh, I am the first and only case of someone being prosecuted for news gathering um, under the California video recording law. So automatically I'm already being treated differently from every other journalist in California. I'm being treated differently from the journalists at Fox News Los Angeles, at CBS Los Angeles, at NBC uh, San Francisco, and many, many others. I'm being treated differently from animal rights activists in California who have gone undercover and recorded video and conversations at, um, uh, at like slaughterhouses and um, and factory farms in California, and they've actually been praised by Kamala Harris's uh, uh, attorney general's office, and their work has been used by <laughs> and relied on by the attorney general's office. Wow. Um, so I'm being treated very differently from all of them. And the reason that I'm being treated differently is is because of what I'm saying, yeah. um, solely because of the of the content of my speech. So that's that's how those two really go hand in hand. I'm being treated differently, contrary to the Fourteenth Amendment, and it's because of what I'm saying, which is which is completely invidious to the to the First Amendment. Oh, absolutely. And that's such a good point for people to understand. Now, when we're going back to Kamala Harris, she I could go on about her for a long time, not as much as you could, I'm sure. But when you look at what she did, I go back to the rating of your home. And I remember when that happened. And we were just saying to ourselves, uh, pro-lifers who were out here watching the progress of the case, saying, how in the world could she get away with doing this? I mean, uh, did you ever get a substantive answer or as you kind of went along and processed what they did to you, you know, what were your thoughts on that whole matter? 
You know, I I was was shocked, to be honest, that they went that far. Um, I was was really shocked um, because I thought that... um, you know, I I think that uh, I, I I I mean I, I think that in the United States of America, when we have disagreements with each other, no matter how how serious they are, I think that if you know if somebody just you know really disagrees with 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 what you're saying and they believe in in that disagreement, then they'll you know then they will um, you know they'll speak out about it. They'll you know counter it. The solution to bad speech is more speech. Um, and so I'm you know I I remain to this day. Um, from, you know, incredibly shocked that um, that people that you know that, that we've come to a point in this country where people are willing to use the police power of the state to try to enforce the orthodoxy of their views on on other people. They're, you know, the, to, to try to, um, to you know to try to criminalize speech that they disagree with. And I was shocked that um, that there were uh, eleven. Uh, agents of the California Department of Justice who were willing to go along with that. We we actually you know, we we actually discovered um, just about a year ago, and this is included in the in, in the in the lawsuit filing. Um, we finally learned just about a year ago that actually the the California DOJ agents who were part of this team um, were told by whistleblowers that they all thought that there was no good faith in this prosecution in this prosecution in the investigation hmm. they knew that it was a political deal ordered up by planned parenthood um the, the california doj is sort of like the fbi of the state as the investigative body and then the attorney general's office are like the doj prosecutors us doj us attorney prosecutors and so they did not launch this investigation on their own they didn't you know think there was an issue and start you know looking around and poking around and trying to find evidence they were sort of ordered and pressured every step of the way by the executive political office of Kamala Harris to uh, to proceed with persecuting me um, and we're told by whistleblowers that they knew that this was wrong. They knew it was just political machinations coming from the very top. They thought there was no good faith basis for it, no probable cause for it. They did not want to seek the search warrant or serve it on my home. And apparently one of the agents who was involved even went out on sick leave. That's how upset he was about what was happening. Oh, wow. Um, so that is, you know, that is an issue that could be very significant in this case. Um, your uh, your listeners can you know please certainly you know pray you know pray for many of those DOJ agents that they have the courage to come forward and to say what they know yeah. about what Planned Parenthood and Kamala Harris were doing because that may be the key to this entire case um, and that could you know that could unlock. Um, the truth for everybody to know what Planned Parenthood and Kamala Harris were doing. That's a great point. Absolutely. And I hadn't realized that that was going on. That's amazing. It gives me a little bit of hope, actually, if people are, you know, part of the government and they're saying, you know, this isn't good. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, it's interesting also something that you point out, David, in this lawsuit, Planned Parenthood has admitted that your videos accurately recorded the words that their leaders actually said. Is that not the fundamental essence of this entire thing? They said it. You recorded it. You didn't violate the law. Let's get some indictments. You know, let's finish this job here on Planned Parenthood. Yep. Yeah, ab- you know, absolutely. And so, you know, while you're at it, I think that, you know, your listeners can also be, you know, please pray, you know, pray for the law enforcement at the federal level, too. You know, our our undercover investigation uh, law- prompted two major congressional investigations a couple of years ago, one at the Senate Judiciary Committee and one at the House Select Investigative Panel. Those investigations were very comprehensive. They had a nationwide scope. 
they issued dozens of criminal referrals for Planned Parenthood and their business partners in selling baby body parts. They sent those criminal referrals to state and local and federal law enforcement, including the FBI and the U.S. DOJ. And at the end of um, 2017, the DOJ actually very, you know, unusually um, very uniquely announced that they um, that, that they had an an, uh, an an open federal investigation of Planned Parenthood based on those criminal referrals. Yes, we haven't really gotten an update since then. Um, but the uh, but the the stuff that Planned Parenthood was involved in, the evidence that that they have on them is very serious and very grave. Um, and so now, you know, now, now is the time. I mean, we're starting to see a lot of the, the, uh, Obamagate stuff is kind of unraveling and starting to be exposed in the news right now. The same thing should be happening for Planned Parenthood. Um, so I think your listeners can, you know, say a prayer for the, for the, uh, for the federal law enforcement in our country as well, that they really have the courage to make sure that the laws are equally enforced, that there's equal justice under the law, that there's not a separate set of laws and, and rules for people who are politically powerful in the country compared to um, compared to all, all the rest of us. Absolutely. Um, that's really important right now, and, and that can start by holding Planned Parenthood and their business partners and actually anybody who was involved in selling baby body parts yeah. should be should be equally held accountable under the law. There are uh, there are Native American tribesmen who have been convicted by the U.S. Department of Justice for selling eagle body parts mm-hmm. against the law. Yeah. So surely it, it it can't be the case in the United States of America that that our Justice Department thinks that it's more of a crime to sell an eagle body part than it is to sell a human baby body part. Exactly. Well, and it gives me hope that we have an attorney general who I think is uh, doing the right things and thinking the right way. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that has been bugging me. It's been several years now since they announced that investigation into Planned Parenthood. And periodically I've said, what what's going on? Are they ever going to get around to this? But maybe they're just getting everything together. And, uh, you know, that gives us some hope. Absolutely something to pray for as well. But, you know, something else I wanted to ask you about, David, was you were also charged with not Nine felony charges in California. I know that you pled not guilty to those charges pretty recently. Where does that situation stand right now? Yes, so that is that is the um, that is the prosecution that was launched by Kamala Harris and now being prosecuted by by Javier Becerra um, and involves a lot of the issues that we're that we're suing over in this in this new federal lawsuit. So that had that case had, had begun with fifteen felony charges under the California video recording law. Um, five or six of them. We're just, uh, we're just. I, I believe, I think it was five counts and six individuals involved that were that were just tossed out a couple of months ago, um, at the end of 2019 by the state judge in that case. Um, and uh, so, uh, so what that means? So, so we've been held to answer on uh, nine of the remaining charges under the California video recording law. Those charges are a little duplicative. It's it's, it's more like six. I think it's five or six individual instances of undercover video recording. So there's still kind of a open question as to how the numbers are all going to shake out. But it's basically, I, you know, I sort of look at it and it kind of feels like the case has kind of been cut in half. Yeah. And I think that's a sign that's very weak and it's starting to, it's starting to fall apart. Good. Um, so basically, uh, before there would ever be a, a, a trial, if there will be a trial in that case, um, the way that it works in California is we have an automatic appeal that we get after after the uh, preliminary hearing where like the case was sort of split in two um and so that appeals process is going to be ongoing throughout the summer and probably for for the rest of the year so it's not moving forward very quickly 
Um, and, uh, you know, and, and if we're successful, uh, with the, um, with the, with the federal civil rights lawsuit, um, this prosecution should just be dropped because it's, you know, it's obvious that the attorney general has admitted that they are, um, that, you know, they've brought a completely bad faith, um, unconstitutional case here. Um, so they should, they shouldn't be able to continue with that. Well, we will absolutely keep praying for you and the center for medical progress. David Delayden with us. center for medical org is their website. God bless you, David. Keep up the good work. We'll be praying for you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. America's response to the coronavirus pandemic has forced a national shutdown, as we all know, forcing millions out of work and adding trillions to our national debt, and in many instances, leaving our religious liberty and other constitutional freedoms in the dust. And as my next guest notes, it all happened due to the fear of the unknown. How can we fix this devastating national meltdown? Well, the National Center for Public Policy Research has just issued a report that offers some ideas on how to restore liberty, rebuild our economy, and safeguard public health while responding to crises. So we're going to get some details on this report now called Beyond COVID-19 from David Reidenauer, who is president of the National Center for Public Policy Research. David, great to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Janet. Thank you. As they say, sometimes the cure is worse than the disease itself. And I'm curious, just as broadly speaking about the subject, your thoughts on what our pandemic response hath wrought for this country. Well, uh, I think at the last count, there were about uh, 37 million people who had been put on the unemployment line. And, you know, as tragic as it is that people are dying from COVID-19, and and don't get me wrong, that's very tragic. It's also tragic that people die from other causes as well. And we really need to take a look at the big picture. So when we're putting people on the unemployment line for extended periods of time, we're actually putting their lives at risk. Right. You know, for um, men unemployed for 90 days or more, they face a 15 to 30 percent increase in incidence of heart attack. For every 1 percent increase in unemployment, there's a 3.3 percent increase in the incidence of drug overdose and a nearly 1 percent increase in suicides. So at the end of the day, we may end up losing more people from the cure than from the disease itself. Right. Well, that is really one of the things we're finding out. And all these people, for instance, who haven't been able to get into hospitals, and now we're finding out, I saw a statistic today showing that only 25% of the hospital beds in every state are taken up by COVID-19 patients. So clearly, this has had a lot of economic damage and a lot of health damage to a lot of people. You've talked, though, about the fear of the unknown leading to what we are seeing unfolding before us now. Can you speak about that issue? What What is it about the fear of the unknown that really has driven some of these bad circumstances that have come about because of our response to the pandemic? Well, you know, we had these models um, that we were depending upon in in order to craft a response. And the initial models were saying that there was going to be 2.2 million Americans who would die. 81% of the population, if we did nothing at all, would be infected by COVID-19. Those turned out, those models turned out to be completely wrong. It was the fear of the unknown that was driving a lot of this policy, because uh, part of the problem is that we had a pretty good 
idea of the number of people who were dying from it, but we didn't know how many people actually had it. So, you know, when you're going through a mathematical equation, it isn't particularly helpful to just have the numerator and not the denominator. You have a denominator, and it seems, based on studies coming out of Stanford University, that the number of people who have been exposed and resolved this illness have been absolutely huge in comparison to the number that we think there, there are. In Santa Clara County, they underestimated it by a factor of 50 to 85 times. Wow. So if you extrapolate to that to the entire United States, we could have tens of millions of Americans who have already had this disease and have resolved it. And obviously that is going to affect what your mortality rate is. And it's a big difference between, you know, a 3% mortality rate and a 0.2 or a 0.1% mortality rate. Right, exactly. Which is more in line with the, the seasonal flu. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, something important that I think has been discussed more and more as we've gone along here is most people were more than willing to, you know, shelter in place, 15 days to slow the spread, all of that stuff at the beginning. The question now becomes... Now that we are seeing that the hospital numbers are are not so high, they're not overwhelmed, most of the people who contract COVID-19, even though the deaths are tragic, most people do recover. Why have we been so slow to respond to the new data and say, well, we probably overreacted, let's get back to normal? It's because there are so many states that are saying, oh, no, it's way worse. Now we have to wait maybe another year to reopen. We have to do this in multiple phases. Why the overreaction, do you think, in light of what we are finding out about COVID-19? Well, I I think that there's a number of factors. One of them is that nobody wants to be wrong about this. Sure. (laughs) Nobody's going to be blamed, I think, for going way over the top, because if there's a second round of this, they don't want to be held responsible. Another part of that is, is that the states and localities figure that Uncle Sam is going to bail them out of everything. Yeah. So they can afford to take it cautiously. They're losing their tax revenue, but they're going to turn to the U.S. taxpayer to bail them out. And I really think we need to send the message loud and clear that the federal government's not going to do that. Beyond that, there are some philosophical um, preferences that that they are pushing. There are some local uh, jurisdictions that really like the idea of having a great deal of control over the populace. Yes. I mean, we, we can see this, for example, with with drive-in church services being banned in certain places. Now, how does that have anything to do with containing the spread of COVID-19? You're sitting there in your car <laughs> in a church parking lot. Yep. How can that possibly spread the disease? And mind you, these are the same states and and jurisdictions that are allowing McDonald's to stay open, where they open the window, they exchange the cash, they get the food. But in your car, you can't accept a bulletin. That's the case here in the state of Maryland, where I'm from. You can go to a drive-in, but you cannot open your window for any reason in a church parking lot during a drive-in service. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. That's an agenda. Yeah. That's an agenda that that isn't for the purpose of protecting people. No, not at all. So in other words, they're not letting a serious crisis go to waste. Those who would be more inclined to exert some totalitarianism while they have the opportunity certainly aren't going to squander that when they're in this situation. Exactly. I mean, take take gun stores, for example. Gun stores are closed down in multiple states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I think. Um, 
and uh, at the same time, liquor stores are open. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, David, you you mentioned the issue of rebuilding our economy. And one of the things that you said in your report, which I think is so important for people to check out, is that we should replace pandemic experts with economic experts at the White House briefings. As we know, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci have taken center stage on a lot of these press conferences and and for good or ill, depending on where you fall in in terms of your opinion of their their views and all the rest. But why, why should we shift who is featured at these White House briefings? Well, because they were very important for us to understand the pandemic itself. Now that we're moving to a footing where we want to reopen the economy, continuing to talk about the disease itself front and center every single day is not going to encourage people to go out and go shopping. It's just going to uh, strike fear. You know, you can lift all the regulations that you want, If people do not feel confident that they can go out and be safe, they're not going to do it. And the economy is not going to get get going again. Yes. So I think it it needs to be a balance. Of course, we have to listen to to Dr. Birch, Birch and Dr. Fauci. But at the same time, we need to be talking about how we can get the economy going, because, you know, we're, we're looking now at we have added three trillion dollars in basically a lot of irresponsible spending. Oh, yeah. Again, getting to what you said about never letting a crisis go to waste. There, there, there's tremendously horrible spending in there. Oh, you're totally right. You know what? We're going to pause here. We're going to take a break. David Ridenauer is with us, president of the National Center for Public Policy Research. We're talking about this Beyond COVID-19 report. We'll come back to it right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as Americans shelter in place. Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn is able to send one hundred thousand dollars to clinics. If this goal is reached, you can help. Call eight five. 
855-402-BABY now. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Once again, call 855-402-BABY or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. So good to have you here, and thanks for being with us. We are speaking with David Reidenauer. He is president of the National Center for Public Policy Research, and they are out with a new report called Beyond COVID-19, talking about ideas on how to restore liberty, rebuild our economy, and safeguard public health as we try to get beyond this national meltdown. And David, we were talking about the need to restore the economy. You talked about the necessity of moving off stage people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks in order to focus on the economy. What sorts of records recommendations would you have? Uh, You list a number of them in your report, but as far as rebuilding the economy, what are some of the top things that need to be done as quickly as possible? Well, in terms of rebuilding the economy, there's a couple of things that we can do. One is that we can make sure that the local jurisdictions know that, you know, they can take their time all they want in opening up the economy, but don't expect the federal government to pay for it. So one of the things that we recommend is that any new direct aid to states and localities be linked to their uh, limiting the amount of restrictions they they put on behavior, uh, on uh, individual behavior. In other words, if they're going over the top, if they're violating individual freedom, if they are doing things that they don't need to be doing, then we restrict the amount of federal money that goes through to them. Uh, Another recommendation that we have is, as you know, a lot of small businesses have been put completely out of business. Yes. Uh, They have effectively had a complete taking. You know, when you take something for for public good, you're supposed to be compensated for it. The problem is, is that by the time you've lost your business completely, you don't have money to go into court. So one of the things that we're recommending is that we set up a special COVID-19 court to address Fifth Amendment takings. Oh, wow. If you're a small business owner who, who has lost their, their complete business because the state of New York or the city of New York doesn't want to open until August, then you can take a claim against the city government. And because it's a special um, federal court, uh, they, it's inexpensive to go to and it's expeditious. And it'll also put pressure on that local government to, yes, be safe in opening, but open up as quickly as is humanly possible. Right. Well, and some of the other things you've talked about are repealing certain standards that are in place, state renewable energy standards. You talk about things like allowing plastic bags and things that have proven to be very, very helpful during a pandemic when you don't want to be touching things that somebody else has been handling a lot. What about the things that need to be repealed, maybe some of these green standards as well? Well, yeah, I mean, as we look at what's happened here, um, we have had the economy slow down, the world economy slow down, and CO2 emissions have declined by about 8%. This is the most since World War II, and yet, at the same time, we see CO2 concentrations continuing to rise. So what does that tell us? That tells us that maybe human beings weren't the problem to begin with, and maybe oceans are a bigger source of CO2 than human beings. And at the same time, all these regulations we have, whether they are renewable energy uh, standards at the state level or they are ethanol standards at the federal level, 
They add hundreds of billions of dollars to the costs of energy. And at this time, you know, when, when we're talking about 37 million people unemployed, there's a lot of people who can't afford their basic energy needs. Right. Let's get rid of some of those regulations. That makes sense. What about our response to China? Because as you were speaking about court a, a minute ago, you've suggested that the U.S. should sue China for damages at the International Court of Justice. I know that's been thrown around before, but do you think we actually could achieve some kind of punitive, um, you know, legal action against China that would actually work? Well, it's obviously going to be very, very difficult, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. We should, yes, pursue um, claims in the International Court of Justice. Article 75, I believe, of the uh, World Health Organization Charter allows us to do that and gives us uh, the court jurisdiction over these matters. But also, we should be changing uh, the sovereign immunities law here in the United States to allow um, individuals who have been harmed by the COVID-19 crisis uh, to go to court against China. I mean, let's take a look at what China did here. I mean, now we are finding out in all likelihood this did escape from a, the Wuhan virology lab. Yes. Um, and then the Chinese lied about it. They lied about the human-to-human transmission repeatedly, not once, but repeatedly. Right. They closed down domestic travel to Wuhan, but allowed international flights. They knew they were spreading this disease. And as a result, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, and maybe as much as 100,000 here in the United States, will lose their lives. And, you know, at what point are we going to take a look at China and realize that they see us as their greatest world adversary, geostrategic as well as economic? And does it really make sense for us to put our health, our safety, and our national security in, in their hands? And yet we're doing that all the time. We are. We depend upon China for, for example, rare earth minerals that we need for our national defense. This just does not make sense. No, I agree with you. And I agree with what you're saying about terminating funding to the WHO until there's some house cleaning that takes place there. On on the liberty front, though, this is a very important issue. Long term, who knows? Maybe that might be the most important issue to emerge from this entire thing. But we've seen religious freedoms quashed. We've seen constitutional freedoms quashed. We have a right to assembly. We have a right to um, you know, r- religious freedom. And we've seen some of these lawsuits that churches have filed. What are your thoughts about that front and, and how we go forward actually adhering to our Constitution if we ever have to face a pandemic again? Well, I think for one thing, there, there's certainly going to be an awful lot of lawsuits after, <laughs> yes. after the fact. But one of the things that we are recommending is Attorney G- uh, General uh, Bill Barr has already alerted the 93 uh, uh, federal attorneys to be on the lookout for excessive violations of civil liberties in the name of COVID-19 response. We think that's a terrific start, but I think we really need to have a dedicated team out there uh, because there's a lot of competing interests within the Department of Justice just to go out and search out uh, these examples. I mentioned a couple of them, you know, uh, like the the drive-in church services that weren't being allowed and Louisville, Kentucky, and and some other areas. Right. Um, so if we have a dedicated team, um, uh, we and they can be prosecuted for this, uh, and go to federal court, and the uh, uh, Department of Justice can be on the side of liberty. 
Um, the other thing that we are recommending, again, I think I mentioned this briefly, is that we link any federal aid to narrowly tailoring every regulation at the local level in order just to resolve the public emergency okay. instead of casting a wide net and violating. I mean, we have people who are running too far from their houses who are, who are <laughs> cited by police. We yeah. have an off-duty police officer who was arrested while playing with his child in a park, just the two of them. I know. Mm. This is ridiculous. This is a police state, and this is intolerable. Oh, it is. And that, you know, that really bothers me more than the silliness of the executive orders themselves sometimes, because, uh, you know, when you have a a ridiculous order that says, you know, the park is closed and, and somebody says, well, you should arrest the father and the son who are bothering nobody and socially distancing, the police who will say, "Okay, I'll do it. Those people scare me more in some cases than the order itself because they won't resist it, seeing with common sense that that's a ridiculous thing to do. Well, of course, there are different police, different people go into police work for different reasons. Right. The vast majority of police officers are very common sense individuals who who volunteered for that work because they wanted to protect public safety. Sure. There are others, however, who just really like the power. And I am encouraged to hear that there are some police departments, I believe uh, the Houston Police Department, that said they just weren't going to enforce some of this stuff. Yeah, that was encouraging. Because they weren't going to violate individual rights. They weren't going to violate the Constitution. So there are police departments who are speaking out against this, and I think that's wonderful. On the other hand, you have a few that are not doing that. You have governors like the governor of Michigan. Uh, who's just out of control. You can't buy seeds. I know. (laughs) When you're at the Walmart? No. Really? I know. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, you know, now people are getting a really stark look at what happens when you say, I don't really care who my governor is. We may never have to go back to those days again where we say, I don't care about voting. I don't care about elections. I think people will care a lot more about elections in the coming days. Well, you got to check out the report beyond COVID-19. Yeah, thank you, David. Check out the report beyond COVID-19 over at nationalcenter.org. David Reidenauer from the National Center for Public Policy Research. So good to have you here and thank you very, very much. Thanks for being with us on Janet Mefford today and we will see you next time. God bless.